Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John. We're moving today into John chapter 5. I'm excited about this. Just to recap a little bit of where we are uh, in the message right now. Last week, uh, we went through chapter 4, and we looked at Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. uh, And we looked at what it means when Jesus said uh, that the fields are ripe for harvest. And the week before that... We were in chapter 3, we looked at his encounter at the opposite end of the religious spectrum with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And the week before that, we looked at the story of Jesus' first sign, which was the miracle of turning the water into wine. And uh, as we move into uh, chapter 5 today, uh, how many of you read chapter 5? A handful of you. So we're going into chapter 6 next week. Uh, Chapter 5 to me was reminiscent uh, of chapter 1 and not for some deep theological reason, but because I found it really confusing. Uh, It's kind of, there is a ton of substance in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, but if you read it, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, There is so much substance. And and as I was studying this week, I found uh, a seminary that's doing a teaching uh, on John chapter 5, and they were in, uh, going into the 17th week of John chapter 5, just because there was so much packed into this one chapter. So uh, when I was preparing this week, it wasn't a struggle finding things to talk about. It was like uh, organizing so much that's happening within this chapter. What we have is uh, Jesus gives kind of his first major discourse in John chapter 5. But again, he seems to kind of jump from topic to topic. He's talking about uh, judgment and life and death and glory and honor and all of these topics that don't really come up in our everyday conversation. Uh, So it can be kind of confusing. Uh, However, that's because Jesus in that moment wasn't speaking to 21st century Americans. He was talking to first century Jews. So today what we're going to try to do is kind of view this chapter through the lens of the first century Jewish people. Now, before we get too far into that, I want to revisit something that John wrote way back in John chapter 1. If you were uh, with us that week, you remember uh, in John chapter 1 that the first 18 verses of John were intended as a prologue, sort of an introduction or a preview to the rest of the chapter. Uh, So what John essentially did in those first 18 verses uh, is he gave an introduction, and then everything in the Gospel of John that follows is the unfolding of those first 18 verses. Now, understanding that is pivotal to understanding John chapter 5 because I believe what's happening as we move into John 5, in my opinion, it's the beginning of the unfolding of one of those things that he said in John chapter 1. He has it on the screen here. But in John 1, John wrote that the word Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, he said, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, all we have ever known is grace. Uh, If you know Jesus, you only know him by grace. If you know him by any other means, then you don't actually know him. We only know Jesus through his grace. We are saved by grace alone through faith, through amazing grace, unending grace. But there was a time when the people knew nothing of grace and all they knew of was the law of Moses. 
And what I believe is so monumental about John chapter 5 is I believe this is when his gospel, his ministry of grace, begins to unfold. It was a ministry uh, by which the people would no longer be bound to the written law of Moses. Uh, They would no longer approach God based on their own works or their own righteousness, but they would begin that transition into the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do my best to show you that this morning. Now, to this point in John's gospel, Jesus had performed several miracles that we know of, and of the miracles listed in the gospel of John, they would have ruffled the feathers of the Jewish people, of the Jewish religious people. Uh, uh, They they would have been kind of offensive. Uh, Things like making wine in ceremonial ritual, ritual washing jars, that would have been offensive to the Jewish people. Embracing a sinful Samaritan woman, that would have been offensive to the people. But what Jesus does specifically in John chapter 5 is not just offensive to the Jewish people, it's in direct violation of the law that they live by, the law of Moses. Actually, in two ways, both in his own actions and in his command to, to, the, uh, to the, the invalid, as we'll see. And what we're going to find is this was intentional. Jesus doesn't come out of that and say, oh, oh, my bad, I didn't know that I was doing that. He actually acknowledges it and makes no apology. So with that said, let's jump in together in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Uh, If you Google this, uh, they they actually know where this location is. You can see pictures of the ruins that have been found of this location. But it goes on to say, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been, been in this condition for a long time, and he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And then on to verse 16, it says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, it is at this moment that the entire narrative of the Gospel of John, from what we've read so far, uh, actually shifts and points in a new direction. And I'll show you what I mean by that. If we back up one chapter to John chapter 4, it begins this way. Uh, It says, now Jesus learned, this is a chapter prior, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. In John chapter 4, a chapter earlier, it was not time yet for Jesus to have his confrontation with the Pharisees. When Jesus learns in chapter 4 that they are learning of his fame, Jesus actually leaves to avoid the confrontation. Now Jesus was never one to back down from confrontation. However, Jesus understood that there was an appropriate time for everything. And for some reason in John chapter 4, that time had not come yet. But here we come into John chapter 5. And even though it's only a chapter later, it begins with the words, Some time later. 
In other words, a, a, an undisclosed amount of time has passed between the two chapters. Uh, and again, Jesus is doing the same thing. He's rubbing the Pharisees the wrong way. However, this time he doesn't turn and go to another, uh, another area. He dives into the confrontation head first. And what's happening is they are bringing two accusations against Jesus. The first accu accusation is they are saying, Jesus, you have broken the Sabbath. You have broken the law by working on the Sabbath. Not only have you done that, but you have commanded someone else to break the Sabbath by telling this man to carry his mat. Now, uh, both of these sound things, uh, they sound ridiculous uh, and they, they sound minuscule, but in a culture where the Mosaic law was everything, uh, it was no small thing to break the Sabbath. So what I want to do is just follow this one narrative for a minute of Jesus working on the Sabbath. Was doing, uh, was do, doing miracles on the Sabbath, uh, was that really work? Was that, was that really working? Well, if we look at Luke 13, 14, if you want to put it on the screen real quick, it makes it really clear that to the religious, uh, religious elite, they considered it work. Uh, they said, uh, uh, said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. They are upset, and actually where they said there are six days from work, they are quoting the law of Moses when they did that. Now, the easy and less controversial thing for Jesus to say in this moment uh, is to respond and just uh, try to justify himself, try to minimize what he did, or say, hey, I didn't view it as work. Uh, I, I saw the need, and my heart went out to him, and I just I didn't view it as work, so I healed him. But instead, Jesus responds this way in John 5, 17. It says, in, the, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is at his work, and I, too, am working. He doesn't deny what they're accusing him of. He actually embraces it. He actually acknowledges it. And then in verse 18, it says, For this reason... They tried all the more to kill him, which seems like an overreaction. But we're, what we're going to find in a moment is uh, that's actually by the law what they were supposed to do if he was working. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In that moment, it just got real. Not only is this guy breaking the Sabbath, not only is he telling other people to break the Sabbath, but now he is making himself equal with God. This is a, a, an incomparably bigger deal than anything we can really relate to uh, right now. But like I said, it was technically punishable by death. If we go back to the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 31, verse 15 says, For six days work is to be done. So this is what they, they just quoted towards Jesus earlier in Luke. Uh, it says, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. Church, next time your wife asks you to mow the lawn on a Sunday, say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Oh, she's in for the life insurance is what it is now. Uh, many laws of Moses, that is not in my notes and I probably shouldn't have said it, but uh, many of the laws of Moses were added by man at a later date. However, this was not one of them. This was actually uh, from the mouth of God. And if there should be any question regarding just the seriousness of breaking the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath, we have a dandy of a story in Numbers chapter 15. I'll read really quickly in verse 32. We begin, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. 
Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, This man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Like I said, in their culture, working on the Sabbath was a big deal. Now, at the time of Jesus' ministry, they've reached a point in their culture where they wouldn't just go straight to the death penalty anymore. Uh, they would have been harsh and critical, but they uh, most likely wouldn't have actually killed someone in this instance. However, because they want Jesus dead and they can justify it based on the law of Moses, they're trying to kill Jesus. So there are two things according to the law of Moses that are now supposed to happen if Jesus has worked on the Sabbath, which he just said, hey, uh, I have to be working, my father is working. So if that happened according to the law of Moses, he's to be brought under judgment and he is to be put to death. Brought under judgment and put to death. They realize this and Jesus knows this too. So I want you to listen to what Jesus says next. Uh, beginning in verse 19 of John 5, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things, yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Now I want you to pay a, a close attention here in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And then a few verses later in verse 26, he repeats himself. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in, in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. This is such a relevant response to what's taking place. Because the Jewish leaders are accusing him and they know two things. You work on the Sabbath, you are to come under judgment and be put to death. So Jesus responds in kind of a funny way. He says, you want to put me under judgment? The problem with that is the Father has entrusted me with all judgment. And you want to put me to death. But the problem with, with, with your theory there is actually God has placed life and death under my own power as well. Now these are outrageously bold claims that Jesus is making in that moment. And, and we're going to get into it a little more. But before we go into what's hap what happens next... I want to show you something here, and my hope is to kind of train you to recognize this when you're reading Scripture. Whenever you are reading the Bible and you see a statement or an event that kind of repeats itself within a chapter or two, very often what the writer or the speaker is doing is he's using a technique that they used in teaching and they used in writing called a chiasm. An easier way to remember it is that sandwich technique, and we've talked about that before. Uh, the Bible uses this sandwich technique in teaching and writing uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of times. It's all over the place. Mark was the most famous for it in his writings. But uh, we looked at an ex example of this a few months ago in Luke chapter 5 and 6 when we were looking at the, the parable of the wineskins. And just to remind you of what we looked at there, it, it kind of makes a sandwich. So in Luke chapter 5, what we have is Jesus offends the Pharisees. And then right after that, the disciples defend the Pharisees, offend the Pharisees. 
Pharisees. And then Jesus gives this parable of the wineskins. He says, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because they'll just burst. And then right after that, uh, the disciples offend the Pharisees. And then right after that, Jesus offends the Pharisees. And what we have, this is called a chiasm or a sandwich. And whenever this takes place, your eyes should focus on the meat of the sandwich. And what we recognize in this parable is that the wineskins, when they're talking about putting new wine into old wineskins, what Jesus is saying is, uh, in your frame of mind right now, you can't even contain my teachings. You can't just put my teachings into the mindset of the law and fit them in. You have to be born again altogether because what I'm teaching you would just burst your mind. So when we, uh, the reason I bring that up is because we find another one of these uh, happening in John chapter 5. In verse 19, John or Jesus says, hey, I can do nothing by myself. The son can do nothing by himself. In verse 21 and 22, he says, but the father, he has entrusted me with life and judgment. And then we get to the meat of this, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Uh, and then we go back. You can go ahead, uh, go ahead and go forward there. Uh, we go back again, and he repeats himself. The Father, again, has entrusted me with life and judgment. And then a few verses later in verse 30, he says it again. I can do nothing by myself. And we have this, and what we are supposed to focus on is that, that middle part, that meat. What is the meat? And I love this because what Jesus says is, is, hey, the Father has entrusted me with life and judgment. And then he says it again. The Father has entrusted me with life and judgment. And the meat of this is Jesus actually tells us what he has decided to do with life and judgment. And we find that in verse 24. Jesus said, this is the meat of it. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So what Jesus says is the father has entrusted me with life and judgment for me to do what I want with it. And this is what I've decided to do. If you place your faith in me, you won't be judged. If you place your faith in me and believe in the one who sent me, you will have eternal life. It's this incredible picture of uh, Jesus saying, hey, God's given it to me, and this is what I've decided to do with it. Uh, it's beautiful to me, church, but I love this. He says, uh, in the future, you will not be judged. But in the past tense, you've already crossed over from life to death. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are a new creation. You have crossed over past tense from death to life. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. Now, Jesus is making some incredible claims here. He, he has not said anything like this yet in the Gospel of John. And all of a sudden, he is just diving in head first. So now what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to substantiate his own claims. So we get to verse 31 of John 5, and Jesus begins to try to substantiate what he's saying. And he says, uh, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I, I know that his testimony about me is true. You, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose uh, for a time to enjoy his, life, uh, his light. Now, Jesus recognized that the people would not accept his own words just based on his own words. 
So he begins actually using legal language, judicial language, courtroom language, talking about testimonies and witnesses. And the reason he does that is remember his audience. His audience is entrenched in the law. This is, this is their language here. Now, uh, even in the legal system today, if someone is on trial for something and they take the stand and the judge says to them, hey, did you do it? And they say, no, I didn't do it. He never says, okay, well, I guess we can all go home. He says he didn't do it. No, he's going to call as many witnesses as he can to either disprove what this guy is saying or to verify what this guy is saying. And the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17 said that if it's a matter of life or death, you have to have two or three witnesses. And this is fascinating because Jesus says, don't just take my word for this. What Jesus says is, I have three witnesses. And actually what Jesus says is, is, is in fact, humans can bear false witness. So I'm going to give you three divine non-human witnesses that what I am saying right now is true. And he gets into that beginning in verse 36. He says, I have a testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given to me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. He, he says, I'm calling to the stand the works that I am doing right now. And what he says right here is, is, it's not the works that I've done. You just keep watching. You just keep watching what's coming. Everything that I am doing proves that what I am saying to you is true. As we move on, he says, uh, and the father who sent me himself has testified concerning me. That, that's the second person he calls to the stand. He says, we have the testimony of the father. Now, what Jesus says is, that's almost irrelevant to you, uh, his audience at that time, because you don't know my father. He says, if you knew my father, you would know that he sent me. So he says, uh, uh, the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, and you have never heard his voice nor seen, seen his form, uh, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. And then in verse 39 he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. The third, the third person or thing he calls to the stand is the scriptures. He says, if you're not going to believe the works and if you're not going to believe the Father, then at least believe the scriptures because for thousands of years they have been pointing to me and I am here. And he says in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And if you go to the very end of John chapter 5, he says, and if I wanted to call someone else to the stand, I could call Moses to the stand because he wrote all about me too. What Jesus is doing is he is saying all of these outrageous claims and he's saying, but I've got so many witnesses right now that testify to the truth of everything I'm saying. Now, one of the questions that we're looking at again this morning is John's use of the language of signs. When John talked about what Jesus did, his miracles, John didn't use the word miracle. John used the word signs. Uh, and by using signs, what he was implying is, is what's taking place points to something beyond itself. So with this miracle at the beginning of John chapter 5, uh, the, the healing of the impotent man, uh, if it points to something, what is it pointing to? Now, when Jesus turned water into wine and called it the first sign, we, we looked up this language of the signs and it led us to Moses. 
And we looked at Moses' first sign, which was turning water into uh, blood. Jesus' first sign was turning water into wine. And it was this comparison of the two of Moses' first sign representing the law brought about death. Jesus' first sign turning water into wine was pointing to grace, which would bring forth life. We looked at the significance of the ceremonial jars themselves used for ritual washings. And again, it led us to the person of Moses. Uh, we looked at uh, how uh, John wrote that no one has ever seen God, but we've beheld his glory. And we looked at that language and where did it lead us? It led us to the person of Moses. And it led us to that moment where Moses said, God, let me see your face. And God said, you can't see me. You can't see my face but you can see my glory pass by you. Uh, over and over again, the Gospel of John is leading of us to these comparisons and these contrasts with Moses. Uh, and I want to preface what I'm about to say to you by saying it is possible that what I'm showing you right now is a coincidence. It would be a crazy coincidence. Uh, I just happen to believe that it's providence, but I'm just saying that to say you don't have to agree with me. I say this to Emily all the time. You don't have to agree with me. I'm okay with you being wrong. Um, uh, no, I, do, I don't tell her that all the time. I'm a fast learner, so I only said it one time. Um, but, but I want to show you this, and, and I'll just let you make your own judgment. Uh, this man who was sick in John chapter 5, uh, the Bible says that he was specifically sick for a span of 38 years. 38 years. And if we search this time span of 38 years in the entire Bible, there is only one other instance in all of the Bible where there is a time span of 38 years. Do you want to know who it's referencing? Anybody? Yeah. It's taking us back to Moses. It's the only other instance in all of the Bible where it mentions a specific time span of 38 years. And in the context, uh, it's talking about when the spies have just come back from the land and they've said, hey, we are grasshoppers in our own eyes. And God becomes angry and he says, you know what? None of you except for Joshua and Aaron are going into the promised land. For the next 40 years, you guys are going to roam the wilderness here. And after 40 years, you can enter the promised land. But what Moses actually did... Uh, is Moses specifically wrote about those final 38 years. Uh, it was a journey from a place called Kadesh Barnea to the Zered Valley, and we find it in Deuteronomy 2, verse 13 and 14. It says, The Lord said, Get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we crossed the valley. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zared Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. This is the only other instance in all of Scripture where we have a time span of 38 years. It's the man who's been sick for 38 years, and it's this moment right here. So what is significant about this 38 years? The significance of this 38 years is what takes place at the end of this 38 years. At the end of this 38 years marked one of the greatest transitions in Israel's history. At the end of the, this 38 years, the leadership of, uh, of Israel transitioned from the ministry of Moses into the ministry of Joshua. It was at the end of this 38 years that Moses died and Joshua led the people across the Jordan River. And I just want to show you this because it's the only two references again, but Greg, um, yeah, you, you have it there. So the first 38 years is the transition from the ministry of, of Moses 
to the ministry of Joshua. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yehoshua or, or, or Yeshua. Now we come to the New Testament in John chapter 5, and we have the next mention of 38 years. And this is what I believe, and you're welcome to disagree. I believe that this is the transition from Moses to Jesus, from the ministry of Moses to the ministry of Jesus, which is the ministry of the Old Testament law, and he is introducing the ministry of New Testament grace. And by the way, I just want to show you this. The name of Jesus in the Hebrew language is Yeshua. It's the exact same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. Again, you are welcome to believe that this is coincidence, but the Bible does things like this too often for me to believe this is coincidence. Uh, and I want you to think about the very next thing that happens. Uh, Renee, if you want to come. The very next thing that happens in John chapter 5, after this man has been sick for 38 years and Jesus heals him, uh, Jesus could have said in that moment, get up. And I want you to come back tomorrow for your mat because today is the Sabbath day and we're going to respect that. But what Jesus says is I want you to get up and I want you to actually take a step away from the law. He actually instructed him in that moment purposefully, I want you to get up, receive your healing and take that first step in the direction away from the law of Moses. I believe what Jesus was saying is I'm going to give you life I'm going to give you healing, and this is the introduction of my ministry of grace. It's not based on the law of Moses. I'm proving that with my first command and my first action here. Now, Jesus never pitted himself against the person of Moses. I want to, I want to specify that. But Jesus brought about a ministry that was different than Moses. The law versus grace. And I believe that this was a sign and it was a statement that Jesus was making that my ministry will be different. We are transitioning into something new. My ministry will be about life and healing and salvation. It won't be about ritual and tradition and earning your way there. Like I said, there is a lot packed into John chapter 5. Church, can you stand with me this morning? so much that, that the privilege that we have of living in the era of your grace that even in this very moment God we can approach you not based on how good our week went or how well we did but based on your work on the cross So I pray this morning, even as Renee leads us in song, that, that if we have placed barriers to keep ourselves from approaching you, that we would, we would break down those barriers and we would say, God, we thank you and we receive from you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The church, I, I don't know where your heart is leading you in this moment. It might just be to embrace that reality that you can approach God and worship might be uh, that you need to pray that God helps you with this, but as Renee leads us, just allow the Spirit of God to search your heart and enter into His presence.
next week. So have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.